welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti, your host. Well, the Women in Leadership podcast brings you interviews with leading women who are making a difference in the world and who care about bringing along the next generation of women leaders. They're women who generally want to make the world a more representative place for all voices and especially women's voices. Today's guest is Noelle O'Connell, Executive Director of the European Movement, and she's deeply committed not only to the European project, but to improving the representation of women in leadership in various organisations and to mentoring and encouraging young people with her five C's, which she goes into in more detail later on. She also talks about the role of Europe in rebuilding the EU in a green and digital way and about how Ireland and Europe are still facing the challenge of Brexit. She talks about how COVID-19 is making Europe a more agile place. For herself, she talks about how it has nudged her into getting back on the bike after a long absence. So hello, Noelle O'Connell. You're very welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. So tell me, Noelle, you're the executive director of the European Movement, which is a membership organization. But what do you actually do? What do you do for members? What is the European Movement? Well, thanks very much, Angie. Um, Yeah, great question to start off with. Um, In terms of European Movement Ireland, We're very proud of our track record and our history and our legacy because for over 65 years, we have been the longest established not-for-profit voluntary membership organization, as you said, in Ireland, whose goal and whose mission and whose objective has been fundamentally to connect Ireland and Europe. So what does that mean in, in practical terms? Well, we are very proud of ensuring and working to, to make sure that Ireland's voice is heard at the very heart of Europe, but also to act as a conduit with all matters European back here in Ireland. So we believe that all of us, um, every level of society, has a role to play in shaping and influencing how Ireland acts and how Ireland inputs and influences all matters European and then equally we act uh, as, a, as, a, as a temperature check and as a, a conduit then for European and the wider EU matters uh, back here in Ireland. So it doesn't matter what government is in or out, you're, you're kind of like a permanent link for anything to do with the EU. Absolutely. I mean, I, I like to say uh, we work with, with all faiths and none. Um, we are very much a, a non-partisan Uh, organization. So what that means in practical terms is uh, that we, you know, we work to uh, support greater debate and engagement and understanding and knowledge on on all matters European, all matters EU, and how Ireland can shape and influence that. So, you know, a big part of that would be to to encourage, um, say, for example, political parties and none, but to encourage some of their youth wings in, in terms of EU training, you know, the 101 guide to how uh, Irish politics and interfaces with uh, European politics. And also, um, for example, um, the big uh, debate and conversation that's going on and, and the dialogue in Europe on the conference on the future of Europe and on all matters Brexit, we would get asked fre- uh, frequently to present and uh, debate and engage uh, with political party constituency meetings or, or summer schools or conferences. And that's something that um, we're very happy 
happy to do and we think it is crucially important uh, to do that so so yeah so we are we're proud of our our of being nonpartisan um and uh, it is something that we believe in very strongly to to ensure fairness and transparency and accountability and engagement at all levels well you mentioned the b word there brexit <laughs> Has has the preparations that have been ongoing for years and the anticipation around Brexit, has that kind of helped us and prepared us for the unforeseen uh, drama that is COVID-19? Without question, without question, uh, as we all know, and and I'm I'm sorry to uh, to to use uh, an oft oh, <laughs> oft over overutilized word, but but COVID-19 has been unprecedented uh, for for all countries, for all health systems, and for all international institutions, as we've seen. There has been no template, workaround, plan um, that can be, you know, dusted off the, the shelf. Obviously, in terms of countries' risk register and business continuity planning, um, dealing with the impacts of such a pandemic would have been factored in. But this, again, the, the in theory and in practice, as we all know, are two uh, completely different things. So in terms uh, from an Irish perspective, um, yeah, it's, it's often been joked that uh, the Brexit uh, continuity planning um, substitute Brexit for COVID, and and we were we were in a we were in a, a, a well, I suppose, a more prepared situation. Sadly, it is something that I think we wouldn't have wanted to. Um, because obviously Brexit is something from an Irish perspective that all levels, be it uh, be it from government, uh, political, uh, civil society, uh, businesses, trade associations, interest groups, sectoral organisations, Brexit is something that nobody here in Ireland wanted, but we have to accept it and deal with it and mitigate and try and mitigate the worst impacts that it is undoubtedly going to cause for the island of Ireland. And uh, as we are seeing with the deadlines looming, it hasn't gone away. <laughs> it isn't going to go away. And um, unless we continue to escalate our preparedness and our preparation and our innovation to adapt and to think flexibly, flexibly outside the box on, on how we are going to have to um, uh, work and and live and do business in a post-Brexit uh, world, uh, the challenges are, are going to be great. But thankfully, I mean, I'm a member of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Brexit Stakeholder Forum, um, which brings together all various uh, stakeholders and government, uh, the civil service, uh, political parties, the machinery of the state is working very cohesively to prepare and to ensure insofar as is possible insofar as is practical, yeah. given that it's uh, we're dealing with uh, unknown unknowns and known unknowns, unknowns yeah. um, th 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 that we have the necessary ability to to try and ensure that we are Brexit ready, so to speak. And, but we're going to uh, miss the British, aren't we? I mean, I know a friend sure. of mine, he works uh, for the government, I won't say what department, but he said that anytime they go to a meeting in Europe, um, the first person that he will naturally gravitate to is a member of the British, you know, because they can talk English, they can talk about the football. We have so much shared interests with the UK. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be a huge change for us. Um, but just going back to what about COVID and the European movement, have your own team uh, 
uh, been coping with, you know, distancing and some people working from home? How have your own team members been coping with and what are their big challenges? Well, like every other business and, and organization and people working in the country, COVID certainly has thrown up some challenges, but, it, but equally so, uh, some opportunities. Um, I was actually recording a podcast, would you believe, Angie, with um, with Lord David Putnam as part of European Movement Ireland's Just the Chads podcast series um, on the Thursday, the, the March the 12th. And I finished uh, my conversation with David, uh, came downstairs uh, to be told, um, you know, the Taoiseach has just announced the various restrictions from Washington. Um, so we very quickly just had a staff team meeting and basically, um, I, little did I know how sadly correct I was going to be, but I just said, look guys, we don't know when the next time we'll all be physically together in, in work, in building, you know, everyone take what they need, uh, stationary coverage was raided um, we had already <laughs> uh, scheduled a working from home remote uh, trial on Friday the 13th that has now become more permanent um, but we've ensured very quickly adapted technology um, <laughs> has been a blessing <laughs> sometimes it's a curse um, we have initiated MS Teams We've transitioned all our um, big part of our work is outreach, is engagement, is town hall debates and dialogues throughout the country. That has all now moved on to the virtual world. Um, we're looking at Zoom, different platforms, um, ramping up our social media engagement. But we are continuing to have our, our check-ins, um, our bilateral uh, discussions, um, and our, our weekly team meetings. Um, but it's, you know, not going to lie, it, it is absolutely harder. Uh, things, um, I think I, I, I saw a leadership podcast there recently, and it was saying that in COVID times, projects and decisions are taking, you know, you have to factor in a 20% uh, add-on time. And that's probably true. It's not the same as walking over to a colleague's desk and saying, listen, what do you think? Should we do this or should we do it that way? Now, it's inevitably taking longer, but I'm incredibly proud of the commitment and the motivation and the dedication um, of our team. We're, I think we're located in nine counties and we've run over six uh, webinars, national and inter international, if I can put it that way, with speakers uh, abroad. And, you know, it's, it's, been, um, it's been really uh, inspiring to see how they've uh, stepped up to the plate. And, and I'm incredibly proud and appreciative of everyone's efforts because we have to remember the human element as well, I guess, don't we? Yeah, we um, miss each other. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Like I it's that, it's that, yeah, I think we've been forced to use technology that was there, but we didn't quite embrace because we actually like being together. Uh, I know I, I teach part time. And one of the things I noticed that we had things like Moodle, but we were using only a small percentage of the capability that was there. Didn't really explore Zoom. And now we have Teams and actually forcing us to use this new technology has been a good thing. Yes. Um, it's saved the environment. I think that's one of the things you've written about, a green and digital recovery. And sure. I was talking to um, uh, Frances Fitzgerald as well, and she said we need to focus on a green, digital and social recovery throughout Europe. Um, do you think Europe is rising to this shared sense of purpose, though? Um, I mean, you've written in the journal that the crisis requires a shared sense of purpose and openness to do new things. Are we, are we rising to the challenge? 
I think so. I think so. And and if I can add to that, I hope so. Um, you know, I think what we would have seen historically in the past, uh, the European Union had a tendency to fit crisis into its bureaucratic processes and its treaty-based rules. So, in other words, it attempted to adapt crisis to how it worked rather than looking at the crisis, adapting to it at hand, and then evolving and innovating. But unfortunately, it's a little bit like a tanker. It takes a long time to, to, to change it. Uh, momentum, direction. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I guess the most controversial example of that would have been previously the Eurozone crisis, when the very strict fiscal and borrowing rules prevented governments uh, from, uh, for, for, you know, from, um, ben, uh, spending uh, their way out of out, out of the crisis, and I think now what we're seeing with COVID is that shared sense of purpose, that willingness and openness to do uh, to do new things and to to adapt and innovate. Like if we take, for example, you know, um, the European Commission um, encouraging member states to bulk buy badly needed uh, PPE and medical mm -hmm. equipment, initiating a system to keep that single a single market borders, to keep them open for critical goods, such as food, such as medical supply, directing some of the EU budget towards research into this into a much needed vaccine. And please God, there will be one and it will be soon. But so these are all some of the new and innovative ways that the EU has been forced to adapt and evolve. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, you know, um, out, of, out of crisis perhaps comes uh, a renewed sense of purpose, uh, a, a new and reshaped vision that is adapting to these challenging circumstances we find ourselves in. I mean, you, you referred there to the financial crisis and, you know, there was a lot of austerity in countries like our own and Greece and Italy and Spain. Yeah, there's no appetite. There's much more of a shared burden this time, isn't there? Especially with some of the responses from um, Madame van der Leyen and Christine Lagarde, isn't there? I wonder, is there, is there an element of, um, you know, the gender aspect coming in there as well? <laughs> I think it's, it's twofold, Angie. Um, the experience of, of, as you mentioned, countries, uh, Italy, Greece, Spain, and, and ourselves, what we went through, during the times of austerity and the financial crisis and the justified perhaps criticism that the ECB and, and the various mechanisms of the European Union more broadly uh, took, took too long to, uh, to respond and deal with the crisis. Again, on the flip side of that at the time, um, it was unprecedented. There wasn't uh, there wasn't uh, templates in place. So now this time round, I think there was much more recognition that the EU needed to be more lean, agile, and more responsive to the to the to the very serious situation that we were facing. So that's been welcome to see. Um, you know, uh, uh, Christine Lagarde, notwithstanding her initial tweet, perhaps to now recognise, you know, that the commitment to the euro is is permanent, and we will do whatever it takes. Uh, echoing Mario Draghi yes. back in 2012, and that's important. And what we're seeing as well from an EU perspective, it's uh, there's a little bit of. Um, shifting tectonic plates in terms, you had the Hanseatic League, then you had the Corona 9, you had the Frugal 4, and maybe now it's just the Frugal 1. Um, but there is a broader recognition that that the EU is, it, is in it together. Uh, borders, uh, the virus does not respect any borders and the solution has to be um, 
across borders. And without that, there is going to be no no optimum outcome of this. I think that agility that you're that agile response that you mentioned there is really evident, you know, in the relaxing of the rules around the airlines, you know, and state aid for airlines and for other organizations, too, isn't it? Is it about pragmatism taking over instead of though that shoehorning of, you know, response into the rules that were already there? Are we getting more agile, do you think? I, I, yes, I, I, in a word, yes, um, I think it's long overdue. Uh, I don't think we're quite fully there yet. The EU would have always espoused the principles of subsidiarity of, of making, you know, the decisions and not one size fitting all. And what we're seeing initially, I think uh, the institutions and the EU more broadly got, you know, got a bit of uh, criticism in terms of how they were dealing with the crisis. But to be fair, member states went off and and there wasn't really a unified and a cohesive approach um and as we are seeing rather than this COVID pandemic being just a sprint it's a marathon and the eu is is really um asserts and and proves its mettle i think during uh during these these marathons it, the flip side is maybe we don't always get the initial uh responses right to the levels that that all of us as citizens as as people would like, but I think the EU is trying to take the lessons it learned from previous crises and adapt them and, and bring in, bring the member states, bring the national governments along with them, because it's not easy to, to coordinate um, responses and, and, and agree a plan of action among what is now 27 member states, but also one that fits the specifics and the uh, particular nature of, of each member state, which has different, uh, different experiences and different uh, priorities. For example, if you take Slovakia, for example, Slovakia had uh, very low, and, and chatting to, to colleagues that I was due to meet and to do conferences in Bratislava with, they have had very low, um, uh, very low uh, incidences of COVID, Angie, Whereas we have seen the, the, the heartbreaking levels of debts and the impact it's had in Italy. So, yeah. And when you look at the, at the EU um, institutions, and particularly in the Parliament, there's almost 50-50 gender split. It seems to make the workings of the Parliament a lot smoother. And, you know, the, you know, the emphasis in the new commission on, you know, having greater gender diversity um, do you think that's affecting decision making and our response to things like COVID and Brexit? We can only but hope. Um, I, I think it, we absolutely need it to be. I know from um, talking with uh, colleagues and, and people working in the Commission, um, which is very welcome to see in terms of the Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, an acquaintance said to me, um, she doesn't just talk the talk, she's actually walking the walk on her commitment uh, to gender equality, which is hugely important um, and, and very welcome. And then, as you mentioned, absolutely, in the, in the European Parliament, having that gender diversity and that balance, again, is vital to ensure, um, to ensure a better decision-making and a better reflection of the perspectives of the whole EU population and the citizens of the different member states. It's not just about 51% of the, the population being represented and having their voices heard. It's to ensure a plurality of views, a, a plurality and an accurate representation of perspectives and of, of the, the people and all the people 
uh, that our MEPs uh, represent, um, because without that representation, that's not reflected in the policies, and then it's not reflected in the decisions that are being taken that affect all our lives. And this is too important to not have that that balance, uh, that diversity, and the, and that inclusiveness. And it's not just. I always think with with the whole gender debate, and forgive me, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. But it's not just. It's not a women's issue. Um, it's never going to change. It is never going to change and improve and evolve without the input, without the support, and without the championing uh, of men. And we have to figure out how we encourage, uh, encourage men to also seek ownership of this, of this challenge. Yeah, and I think the working from home thing, um, um, one of the things that Frances Fitzgerald was referred to something she read, that some father said uh, he didn't realise he was an absent father until COVID hit. You know, there's a lot of waking up for, for men and it's been very good for them. I think they appreciate it as well. Uh, I just wanted to come back to you on, on one of the responses, like one of the numbers I thought was phenomenal was going from 7.5 billion to 40 billion. And that's the Just Transition Fund, uh, which is responsible for facilitating and transitioning transition through reskilling and retraining of workers. We're really going to need to retrain and reskill to be both green and digital for the future. It's a lot of money that the EU is putting (laughs) our way. Um, What sorts of green and digital changes do you think they'll be they'll be backing or you know what can we look forward to? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the Just Transition Fund and the Next Generation EU, it's fantastic to see that the EU Green Deal, uh, this Just Transition Fund, as you mentioned, that the EU is is putting money to, to support innovation, to support disruptive technologies, um, to really ensure that we have both a digital and also a a sustainable and a socially just economy. And and how we go about getting there, I think, is a big opportunity for us in Ireland. What difference will this green and digital transition make in the lives of women, do you think, in the workplace? I mean, we've seen how women have been asking for, well, men and women, but particularly women have been asking for the ability to work from home maybe one or two days a week. And it was resisted by a lot of employers. But now the employers are are tripping over themselves. Some of them are providing broadband for their employees and laptops. You know, all that's suddenly flipped. Um, it's going to make a huge difference to the lives of women, particularly women with young families. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's really uh, interesting, isn't it? Uh, the the old rule book has somewhat been thrown out the windows um, as we seek to adapt and ensure a new model and uh, that is fit for purpose to the changed circumstances that we find ourselves in. Um, in terms of the, the green and digital transition, it's it's a little bit unknown, still to be determined, I think. We are embracing new technologies. We are embracing new flexibilities. Um, but we also, it needs to go beyond and above that. I think uh, we need changes to attitude. We need changes to to work culture and that really will yield benefits for for women in, and and men in the workplace um, and how, how do we how do we do that is certainly going to be a challenge I know myself when I take uh, our own organization um, you know we, we'll probably be looking um, we've obviously been following all the uh, public health and government guidelines with 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 staff uh, working remotely but how do we transition uh, the team back on a phased basis because 
creativity, that communications, that, that, that water cooler conversations, that spark, that lead to innovation, <laughs> um, that lead to new ways of thinking. It's a little bit more challenging via Zoom or via MS Teams. Absolutely. And so, so, and it's missing that, that human interaction, I know for, for certainly for, for colleagues. So, so it's getting that balance right, that ensures it's fair, that it's equitable, um, and that it also works for the business as well. So that's going to be um, certainly a, a, a challenge that we will have to navigate and, and manage. Um, and will we get everything right? Uh, pro probably not, but we have to try, we have to adapt, we have to, we have to innovate. And I think as an organization, we pride ourselves in our culture of, of flexibility and willingness to evolve and adapt. Um, so it's, a, it's, going to, it's, it's a logical challenge, but it's, a, it's somewhat unprecedented in its nature as well. I think it involves a lot of trust as well on behalf of employers and leaders as well. Absolutely. Um, just want to move on to your pearls of wisdom. I know you've mentored a lot of young people and especially on women and that you're a big supporter of Women for Election and Women on Air. Do you enjoy doing this and why does it matter to you? I really, I really do. I really enjoy it. Um, so I'm maybe I'll take the, I'll, I'll work somewhat backwards in my answer. Um, I enjoy it and I guess, why does it matter to me? Um, well, A, I'm, you know, a, a long-standing admirer and supporter of the incredible work that organizations like uh, Women for Election and Women on Air do in supporting and encouraging both the voices and the presence uh, and greater, greater input and recognition of women in, in politics and in media, in the wider communications and, and uh, commentariat uh, type debates. Um, it matters because, and it matters to me personally, I guess, um, you know, as, as Kofi Annan uh, previously said, he said, you're never too young to lead. And then he paused and he said, equally, you're never too old uh, to learn. And it's, you know, it's a little bit like um, uh, I was at uh, one of the last events I was at before the shutdown in March was a fantastic um, Nora Casey Women's Day uh, walk with leaders mentoring and Julie Cinnamon at that um, the CEO of Enterprise Ireland, she spoke about, you know, making sure uh, that you had uh, the, the, you know, as you climb, make sure to bring, bring people up the ladder with you. And, and I think that's, that's a really, really important. And I know when I left college and started off in my career initially, um, I never, you know, nobody ever spoke to me uh, or advised me um, about the importance of having a mentor or having a champion or having someone in your corner who had your back, who you could talk to confidentially, ask for advice or, or guidance. And, and I think it was only as I uh, sadly got more gray hairs that I, that I really recognized the importance of empowering, particularly young women as they start out in their careers and, you know, have, having the, those conversations with them and encouraging them to seek to have those mentors and champions. And that is something that I, I, I personally uh, place a lot of store in. I, it's something I, I work very hard at. We do a huge amount of career advice for um, Irish people who are looking to work in the, in the wider EU ecosystem and, and the various institutions and bodies. And we give a lot of uh, career advice uh, guidance to both 
uh, young women and and young men and uh, and that is something that um, I continue to do and we've uh, we've a great alumni if I can put it that way of past and present um, European Movement Ireland uh, stagiaires uh, European Movement Ireland interns people who've been to our Brussels Connection event um, people who have heard us talk at, at career presentations um, you know they've gone on to be um, advisors to ministers, ministers, they've gone on to be journalists, uh, working in government departments in the European Commission, in the Parliament. Um, so it's it's something that we're very proud of and it's something I really believe is, is uh, there's an onus and responsibility on leaders to empower the next generation and those following behind us. And, and, and so that's why I think uh, it, it matters to me both personally and, and professionally. Good on you. It's, it's great to hear. Um, what would be the typical five pearls of wisdom that you'd give to people when it comes to leadership? What are your own five pearls of wisdom? Yeah, so I, I, I call it, Angie, my five C's, if I can, if I can use it that way, right? Uh, so my five pearls of wisdom would be, number one, communications. And by communications, I mean communicate use your voice, uh, be, <laughs> be loud, be proud, be bold, but mm -hmm. equally listen, listen. And that is as important <laughs> in the whole communications journey and the communications process. Um, I worked with a colleague, she used to always say, in, she worked in communications actually, you know, you've two ears, one mouth, use it accordingly. And, and, and but equally, <laughs> you do have one mouth. And uh, it is important um, how you communicate and, and, and how you listen. So that would be my first C. Um, my second C would be culture. Uh, culture is hugely important um, from my, per, my own perspective as a leader. I try to have a culture of inclusiveness, inclusivity, uh, openness, transparency, accountability, uh, responsibility. And culture, culture starts at the top. It eats, you know, it eats strategy for breakfast. And without culture, an organization cannot fulfill its mission, its vision, and it's, it's not being true to its values. So that, for me, I see that symbiotic relationship between those. So that's my second C, culture. Um, and then um, clarity. I think clarity is really important. A little bit linked into the communications, but be clear, be concise, and uh, you know, outline the project plan, outline your goals, take on board constructive feedback, uh, have that dialogue and debate, but have clarity of, of purpose, clarity of strategy, and, and clarity of goals and objectives. Um, and then a um, bit of a, a dual one, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of going 5.56 maybe. Uh, my, my next two are, are, are care and commitment. So what do I mean by that? Be committed, uh, be committed to you know, to the cause, uh, be committed to, to, to your, your, your team, your organizations, your members, your stakeholders, and care. Because if you don't have that level of care and level of commitment, you're not bringing that level of passion, I think, to, to your work and thereby reducing, I would argue, your 
effectiveness and your ability to speak with authenticity to what you're trying to deliver. And then I think uh, champion. Um, I think uh, my, my fourth C, <laughs> champion, uh, going back to something I mentioned earlier, have champions yourself and be a champion. So if I take myself as a leader, um, I think there's a, it is incumbent upon me as a leader and I have an onus of responsibility and a duty of care to, to my team, to the organization, to, to the board, uh, to our uh, infrastructure and our ecosystem to, to be a champion for what we do, for our work, for our purpose. Um, and, but also to have champions myself. Um, you know, being a leader, being a CEO, no matter whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's being CEO of, of a multinational with, you know, uh, 300,000 staff or being, being a, a self-employed uh, uh, one, one person uh, organization, you know, it's really important to have champions in your corner as well and people that you can go to for advice and guidance and, and, and a bit of a reality check and a bit of a different perspective and the sense check. And then my last C uh, would be change, 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 really important. Um, be agile, flexible and adapt and be willing to adapt and embrace change. Change sometimes I think can be really hard um, if we always have processes and procedures and it's always worked this way. Uh, if it ain't broke, you know. <laughs> There's a certain comfort in that, though, isn't there? Yeah. So being willing to embrace change. Yeah. Yeah. And enjoy it as a roller coaster, I suppose, more than a safe ride. Exactly. And it's uncertain. It can be it can be disconcerting. It can be somewhat uh, unnerving. But out of change, out of that disruptive innovation comes some of the best outcomes. Brilliant. Music. Are you into music? Do you have a, a go to <laughs> song? I'm always amazed and surprised by what people say to me. What's your what do you listen to music when you're trying to relax or even when you're trying to get energized? Sure. I have a very eclectic <laughs> music taste, I will have to confess. Um, I think when I was uh, when I was uh, younger and and uh, and and growing up in school, um, I was a big uh, reggae Bob Marley fan. <laughs> were my go-to uh, were my go-to in the Leaving Search, which obviously isn't that long ago. <laughs> she says, um, um, but then just you know, I, w I would really listen to listen to absolutely anything. Um, big fan of Aretha Franklin, and I think that resonates this last while. More, more recently, and I think, amen to that. <laughs> amen to that. Yeah. What's well, the best? Uh, I'm just moving on to another thing now, which I've started recently, and uh, that's just asking people about money. It's amazing how people sure. have different money values, particularly in their own personal lives. What's What's the best money advice that you ever got? I mean, anything philosophical about saving something every week, or, you know, I think it's always a challenge for women because you know the learned is that we'll be provided for, but we're in a different era now, and we have our own money. But do we squander it? Do we spend it? I'm always interested to hear what your own philosophy is. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> and uh, so my dad, uh, as a farmer, used to always say, mind the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. Um, and, you know, I think um, working in working in the not-for-profit sector, um, we have an onus and a responsibility and a duty of care to ensure value for money. So uh, we 
that 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 guiding principle i think is something that uh, that certainly uh, remains uh, remains ever present so yeah i think mind the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves Good advice. On the environment, I think we've all tuned into the earth, particularly since COVID. We're hearing birds singing in ways we never knew before and seeing wildlife reemerge. Um, do you think that our new focus on the environment, will it be easy to sustain? And is there anything that you do in your own life uh, to support, you know, preserving the environment or what do you do? I hope some of the unexpected benefits and and uh, positives uh, of of the the lockdown and the COVID pandemic will remain with us. When I first moved to Dublin, I had a bit of a bad episode on 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 a bike um, when I lived and worked in the in the city. So I was a, a little bit worried about going back on the bike. Um, but now, since March and since I uh, dusted off the bike, um, I have really, really enjoyed and relished cycling into the office here, cycling within the, the five kilometres radius and exploring more as, as, uh, as the restrictions have lifted. So for me, at a personal level, um, this has been an unexpected benefit um, in terms of the, the COVID pandemic, um, but also more broadly, it's really, as, as my working environment has changed, work-life balance, it's really uh, forced me to look at that personal responsibility, just even in terms of waste, sustainability, a big part of my work would have been uh, events and conferences and quite outward focusing and uh, networking and different uh, seminars and, and dinners. So it's really shone a light uh, into how uh, the supply chain and, and uh, that, that aspect of the whole uh, uh, work-life balance in terms of ensuring, you know, broader sustainability and and responsibility in terms of having the environment in a better a better place um, so it's it's something i've i've started to um to 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 try and look at, at at taking personal responsibility but equally we were quite a green company beforehand anyway and i think uh, i think we will just continue and and to try and to continue to innovate and adapt and and take best practice uh, on board. I think there's going to be a very strong green sheen off the new programme for government too, which will be great, particularly when you think of the uh, the plans for greater cycling infrastructure, which will be wonderful. I think we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I, I won't uh, re regress back to my earlier uh, experiences in Dublin, but no, it's been fantastic for me um uh get it, getting on the bike the last the last couple of months so long oh. may it continue and you're very brave to get back on huh? <laughs> <laughs> i think we all could do a little bit of bravery noelle thank you so much for being my guest today uh, a wonderful guest on the women in leadership podcast the very best of luck thank to you. you with your uh, work in the european movement and thank you again for taking part thank you very much that was the amazing noelle o'connell of the european movement in ireland she was this week's guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. Do like and share the podcast if you enjoyed listening. And remember, we've also a fantastic back catalogue of guests for you to listen to. They all generously share their time, experience and advice. You can follow us on Twitter at Leading Women Pod and we're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. 
You can email us on info at womeninleadership.ie with any comments and suggestions of women to interview. And we also have a website, www.womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye, take care, and stay safe.